is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Happy New Year to you. It's great you can join me on the Country Hour in 2023. Michelle Stanley with you. And this half hour, I'm going to put some seafood on your plate. Not just any old catch either. A Darwin-based company is buying into one of WA's most well-known fish brands. So we've been looking to grow the volume um, over the coming 10 years to 10,000 odd tonnes. From what we're doing today is sort of around 1,500 tonnes, using that processing base as well in Darwin and you know, getting our fish to market in as fresh a condition as possible. You'll get the detail on that deal before one o'clock. Also this afternoon, have you looked into going green, I wonder? Electric vehicles, you might be starting to consider making the switch for your day-to-day car. What about getting around on farm? One producer has done the numbers comparing electric quads to petrol and diesel. The main savings has been the the servicing costs. So the vehicles um, have got a lot less uh, running or or operating components. So, yeah, when you take all those into account, um, you know, the the maintenance costs themselves are, are a lot less. I reckon you'll be interested to hear what else he has to say on that. Stick around for that and plenty more this afternoon. And if you have a thought you would like to share, maybe you've crunched the numbers on electric vehicles yourself, get in touch on the SMS 0487 991057. Text in, let me know what you reckon, 0487 991057. First, though, today it's been a wet start to 2023 for parts of the Territory. In the 24 hours to nine this morning, Daly River got 81 millimetres. Elizabeth Downs had 77. Edith Farms had 71. Uh, Over at Warrawee, 88 millimetres. And Maningrida had 62 mils. And thanks to all the rain from ex-tropical cyclone Ellie the last few weeks as well, the season is looking well above average at some properties. Michael Johnson is the Head of Pastoral Operations for AA Co at LaBelle Downs Station. Michael, what's it been like at LaBelle in the last week or so? Well, we haven't seen the sun for about 10 days, I don't think. So um, it's been extremely wet, actually, um, sort of leading up to Christmas and then we actually seen the sun come out over Christmas Day, which was nice, and then um, it's been raining ever since. So, yeah, some significant rainfall in this area. Yeah, how, how significant in, you know, the hundreds of mils? Oh, yeah, definitely. We're probably averaging sort of 50, 60 mil a day at the moment. So, um, yeah, you know, I think um, we'd be well up, you know, I think probably over seven, 800 mil for the last um, 10 days to two weeks. Yeah, right. Well, what does that look like out at the station? Um, a lot of water running around. Um, fortunately, we had some good early rain, so everything was nice and green and actively growing. But um, yeah, a lot of lot of water moving around and big water running across the floodplain at the moment. Is it typical to see that amount of rain over the last couple of weeks of December heading into Jan? No, certainly not. And talking to a few people that have been around for a while, they said it's quite quite significant compared to normal. So, um, and it's not often you'll see the floodplain feel like that. Um, heading into January, it's it's generally sort of later, later Jan into February, so um, certainly early, yeah. So what are you doing at the moment with your cattle, um, you know, trying to manage that kind of weather? 
Yeah, well, it's not too bad. I mean, we mustered everything out off the floodplain early um, because we had sort of some of that early storm rain and some, some runoff into there. So we're sort of well ahead of the curve there, but um, we are just cleaning up a few tails and bits and pieces everywhere. But cattle are up on the high country um, and um, just enjoying the green grass, I think. But I'm, I'm sure that they'll be happy when it, um, when it stops raining for a few days as well. AACO has properties right across the Territory, um, including in around the Victoria River District. How are they looking in that region? Yeah, good. Bit of a slow start in the Vic River, but um, certainly um, ex-Tropical Cyclone Alley um, delivered the goods as it was going down through there. Probably a couple of falls that would have been nicer to um, get them a little bit more spread out, but in general they've had really good rainfall with sort of you know up to 400 mil. Um, across some of those pro- uh, properties over the past two weeks. So, um, yeah, I think looking terrific is probably just a bit of that um, heavy runoff rain. It would have been nice if it came a bit slower, but um, we fared pretty well. And operations in that area, uh, are things kind of business as usual? Yeah, business as usual. Um, you know, this time of year we don't have too many staff on our properties anyway. They all go home for the Christmas period and, and the wet season period. So, um, I think I think the people that are left there probably just enjoying the rain. There's not not too much to do, um, keeping up with lawns actively growing and um, all the associated bits that happen in the wet season is the is the big task. But um, yeah, no no major damage or anything like that. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, it's been a little bit more extreme further east, though, around the Barclay and, and Brunette Downs as well. I've seen some photos and videos online. It's copped an awful lot of rain. How much do you reckon you've had out there? Yeah, well, Brunette sort of depends um, on, on Brunette itself. Um, again, we're probably up around that 400 mil over the past couple of weeks or, or not quite, three to 400 mil in, in areas. Um, given they're pretty big properties there, it can be quite isolated. So what you take under the gauge isn't necessarily what falls in the paddock and it does collect a lot of runoff water in the Barclay. So, you know, stations next door where they had up to, you know, 150, 200 mil in one night um, so certainly um, filled up all those streams and those photos you would have seen a, a runoff from that and um, it's all flowing down there into the lake country. So are you moving cattle around there to try and avoid that weather, that water? Yeah, definitely. We we actually um, we actually started before Christmas up on um, Anthony's Lagoon and Eva Downs, um, our two properties to the north, um, and cleaned out all those lake paddies and did some parcel stuff on Brunette. And then um, as the system got a little bit closer, we got in front of it. So um, yeah, they've been pretty active down there in the past ten days, I suppose, um, just moving cattle out of any risk areas. But um, at, at the moment, they've got everything exactly where it needs to be. So. Again, they can sit back and, and sort of enjoy that rain as it keeps coming or the flood waters as they recede into the lake country. Yeah, have you had any losses associated with the weather? No, no, not, not at all. Um, well in front of that and um, we, we had a beautiful start um, to the season down there with good rain through October and November, so cattle naturally up on the high areas and, and in really good nutrition, so no, it's excellent at the moment. Yeah, that's really good news to hear. Um, we've we've officially gone into January. How would you rate twenty twenty two? You know, compared to the last few years that you've been at AACO? Yeah. Oh, look, incredible, um, incredible season. Really, we're we're coming off the back of four or five really dry ones, and um, certainly down on the Barkley um, was a pretty good season on the Southern Barkley anyway last year. 
uh, got a little bit lighter as she went north, but um, and it's been quite dry in the Vic River. But but in general, um, if you look at the rain we've had across the whole expanse of our properties and right into our Queensland properties, um, it, it's tremendous. So yeah, we're we're well ahead of where we've been the last three or four years. That must be a good feeling. Yeah, it's a great feeling. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, it'll kick the cattle market a little bit, and um, yeah, we'll be laughing. What are you hoping for from twenty twenty three? Any any big expectations? Oh, I don't think so. It'll just be nice from a seasonal perspective. Really, um, we we haven't had a long, long sort of extended wet for a very long time. So it'd be nice if we could get a little bit of sunlight now, dry the country out, and then come back through in in the end of January, February, March, and extend right out to Easter if it could, which would be which would be great for the property. So, um, yeah, no, nothing nothing too out of the ordinary, but just, just hoping the season continues. Yeah, I think um, you've put the order in for a lot of people there. I think they would like a little bit of sunshine yeah. followed by some more rain, that's for sure. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh, in terms of your operations, do you have any any major changes to what you're hoping to do for the next 12 months or so? No, no, not really. Um no, it's all it's all pretty much B A U at the moment. So um, yeah, nothing that's that's sort of out there or or particularly different to um, to any other year. We we might hold cattle for a little bit longer on take advantage of some of these great seasonal conditions and and add some more kilos. But um, other than that, um, it's all pretty much the same. Well, it's been great to catch up. Good, good that it's good news um, because you know we don't we don't always get it as good as we've had uh, this time of year. Um, but Michael Johnson, thanks for your time on the Country Hour today. No problems, thank you, Michelle. He's the head of pastoral operations for AA Co at Labelle Down Station in the Daily. And I wonder what you've seen at your place the last few days and weeks. Get in touch zero four eight seven. Double nine one zero five seven is the SMS zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven. Now all of that rain and flooding is still impacting a number of roads across the territory this afternoon. Dan Fitzgerald has been having a look at the Roads Report website. What can you tell us? Oh well, the good news is that the Barclay Highway is open, but it is under some traffic management um, from eight a.m. to four p.m. Uh, It'll and then it's closed overnight, and that's expected to uh, be in place um, tomorrow at least um, until those repairs are finished. I'm not quite sure how long that'll be. I've asked the Department of Infrastructure today, um, but they didn't get back to me. It's only a 50, sec- 50 metre section of the road that's sort of damaged here on the Barclay Highway, so hopefully it won't be too long. Mm. I mean, the, the damage was pretty extensive. Yeah, fair bit of undermining there um, mm. on the Bagley Highway. But yeah, good news is it is open from 8am to 4pm. Uh, the Tablelands Highway, though, that is closed between the Barclay Highway intersection and the Barclay Stock Route. Uh, the Tanami Road still closed to the end of the seal to the WA border. Uh, the Plenty and Sandovers, they're both still closed to the Queensland border. And the Buntine Highway is open, but to high clearance four-wheel drives only. Um, yeah, and for the latest, uh, just jump on the Roads Report NT website. Very good. Thanks for that, Dan. It is 19 to 1 on the country hour. Well, let's have some sunny music. This is from Brad Paisley. Keep on the sunny side. Brad Paisley, keep on the sunny side. A little bit of sunny music uh, to try and brighten these very wet days right across the Territory. It's quarter to one. Hi, Cole Stanton, your local dirt doctor or soil doctor, carrying out some uh, erosion control works on Andalusia Station at this given moment. And guess what? You're listening to Country Hour.
Yes, you are. Michelle Stanley with you today, and it's great to have you along. 2022 was a bit of a bumpy year for cattle prices. They started off strong, but the foot and mouth disease scare in the middle of the year sent prices plummeting. There was a correction, but prices on the domestic market have continued to slide. So what might Australian cattle prices do in 2023? Here's market analyst Simon Quilty's take. What we're seeing now in terms of cattle prices um, is just part of a natural um, cattle cycle that occurs over four years. Um, and we're at a transition stage um, right now. So the expectation is that we'll start to see prices, you might say, transition till August next year, stepping down. Um, in some instances, we may be closer to the, the bottom, you might say, of the market. And in others, we've still got a little ways to go. But um, And then when we get to the bottom of the market, um, it's about 12 months um, into 2024 to the end of 24 that we finally come out of that and then then start to lift again. So to say it in a succinct way, Peter, we are in a cycle and we're at the start of, you might say, stage one of the um, transition down. That doesn't sound like a very optimistic way to go into the new year. We won't be setting any records no, I don't think we are, but I think it's just, you know, people that have been doing this for a long time understand that these cycles exist and that it does create opportunities as well. Um, you know, I personally think that at some point um, the value of cows will become um, even more attractive, um, probably May next year is my expectation. And those that are rebuilding or looking to rebuild, it's a good opportunity to step in and start to buy again. So for many, they've kind of missed out over the last um, year and a half, two years because of how expensive things have been, cattle. Um, but as we move forward, I think it does create opportunities for those that want to step back in, start to rebuild again. And so we understand this is uh, cyclical, but where are we at in that downward cycle. Can you give us some figures of, of how far through the correction we are, I guess? Sure. So um, in terms of where we're at in, in the stages, this is, you might say, about just over halfway through. And so what we'll do you know, is as we step through this, the cattle herd is actually expanding. No surprises there. But I guess as it expands, Peter, the numbers build, of course, and supply starts to out, you know, oversupply, not oversupply, but um, demand, you know, is on the other side and there's simply a, a too much supply coming forward and therefore prices start to fall. I think, though, what to keep in mind is that production in Australia in terms of beef Every time we've had a high, you might say, in production, those highs are slightly lower than, than the previous high of um, four, five, six years earlier. So it's a trend that we've noticed and that the lows in terms of volume of production and beef are getting lower again. And I think part of that is that challenge of continually hitting droughts. And so just when we think we're really you know, rebuilding at a good rate, we hit a drought and unfortunately it slows down that that production cycle 
and therefore the highs are getting lower and the lows are even getting lower again in terms of overall volume and production. Simon, prices aside, uh, was 2022 the year that we started to care about FMD? Is that the big thing that stands out for you? Or maybe the floods, a bigger issue to have hit the industry? What's what's the big one for you? I, I think FMD and lumpy skin disease were the, the, the big ones, the big tickets. And there's no doubt that we saw in July this year a plummeting of prices as, you might say, hysteria in the media kind of took hold. And fortunately, those prices corrected themselves as the hysteria came out of it. But Peter, look, there's no doubt those concerns still are there. You know, I was fortunate enough recently to go to a summit in Bali on foot and mouth disease, of which lumpy skin disease was also talked about at length. There were 15 nations present, 10 of which both diseases are endemic and meaning they're there to stay. And the real concern is within Indonesia that both foot and mouth and lumpy skin disease today is endemic, meaning that it's going to be incredibly difficult to get rid of. Do we, to some extent, just need to accept that it's coming for us? I think we do. And look, let's give credit where credit's due. I think um, the federal government and the um, Chief Veterinary Officer Mark Ship and his team have done a very good job in reaching out to Indonesia. I think the fact that the vaccinations in Bali are now of a significant uh, number is really important in terms of reducing the Bali risk in terms of tourists and travellers. So, you know, right now, almost every animal in terms of cattle have had their first dose in Bali and they're on to their second vaccinations, which has really reduced that risk considerably. But Peter, the real concern is the rest of Indonesia, where right now, you know, it's barely 10% of all livestock throughout Indonesia have been vaccinated. And here we are almost eight months into these two diseases. So the spread continues throughout all of Indonesia of both diseases. And what we're learning is that it's becoming more intense within regions of Indonesia. Simon Quilty, he's an independent livestock market analyst and was speaking with Peter Somerville. It's eight to one and some sad news to bring you on the Country Hour this afternoon. A man has died at a rodeo in southeast Queensland. The 25-year-old had travelled from New South Wales. He was competing in the novice bull riding competition at the Warwick New Year's Eve show on Saturday night when he fell from the bull he was riding and was kicked by the animal's back legs. Police and paramedics say he was taken to Warwick Hospital with serious chest injuries where he later died. Jason Hall is the chair of the National Rodeo Association. He was announcing the event. Uh, yeah, look, the competitor was competing in the, the novice bull riding event. He um, bucked off his bull kind of about halfway through the ride um, and the bull's back feet came into contact with the competitor and yeah, that was uh, the paramedics then sort of him, and he got got taken to hospital. When when you say novice bull rider, like, do you have to have some sort of level of 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 riding experience to enter these sorts of competitions? Well, the, the, there's a number of different levels, um, as as there are with a lot of uh, sports, I guess. So, 
the novice bull riding is actually the the kind of entry level um, division for competitors to compete. So um, once once a competitor's broken open, they they no longer compete in the novice, and that's when they've accumulated a certain amount of points riding as a novice competitor. So that the novice bull ride is that sort of entry level above above juniors. As far as um, you know, protective equipment. He had was wearing a helmet and a protective vest, so all the sort of you know, so he was taking all the precautions, I guess, with the protective equipment side of things. But that's there, obviously, to help limit any injury. It can't can't obviously prevent um, prevent prevent everything from happening. So, just an unfortunate accident. Do you know how experienced he was? I, I don't know that. No, he was um, he was a, a what we call a day member of the national. Radio Association, so not a, a member that we saw, um, or not a permanent, you know, annual member that we saw uh, every weekend. So this was the first time that I'd, I'd seen him at a radio. It's a pretty, pretty terrible thing to happen at an event like this and a celebration. How, how are people feeling about what happened? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to talk to individual people about that, but I, I, I mean, most people that I've spoken to are, are pretty... Um, yeah, pretty upset about it, and uh, you know, I understand that the, the competitor had a young family, so obviously, an extremely tough time on the family. So, um, yeah, we wish, wish them all the best. Yeah, thoughts go out to everyone in that community and the family, of course, as well. That was Jason Hall, he's the chair of the National Rodeo Association, and was speaking with Julius Dennis. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Five to one, Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon and a Darwin-based company is buying into the Kimberley's most well-known fish brand, Cone Bay Barramundi. Wild Ocean Australia, which owns the Darwin fish market, is in talks to buy 75% of the Barramundi group. And this comes after the group revealed some major expansion plans, which include the development of 13 new leases off the Kimberley coast. Alastair Smart runs Barramundi Group's Australian business, Marine Produce Australia. He says the new partnership is good news for those expansion plans. So Wild Ocean is their team uh, based in Darwin, and they've been doing uh, wild fisheries sort of product there and recently have acquired the Darwin fish market. And because of that, they've been processing some of our fish for coals. So they've, they've got a really good awareness of the product. So when they heard about this, they really believe in the quality. And so basically, in, in some respects, Barramundi Group uh, retain a sort of a – because they've actually also obtaining ownership of Wild Ocean as well. So it's a, a bit of a mix. And, and so they sort of still retain equity majority in MPA, but Wild Ocean takes 75% of the product of the uh, of the company Marine Produce Australia. So together, I think you, you've got a, a local Australian partner, I think makes a big difference as well with all that experience. They've got their own value-adding processing operation in Darwin that then gives you access to East Coast markets very well and also, you know, across to you know Singapore where uh, Barramundi Group is is based as well so I think it's there's a lot of potential for the future in in synergies what does this mean for the Cone Bay brand and expansion plans in the Kimberley off the Kimberley coast to continue on as it as it always has I think um, our sort of plan is uh, not to be really effectively changed too much by Wild Ocean they really like our plan so we'll be looking to grow the volume um, over the, the coming 10 years to 
10,000 odd tonnes from what we're doing today is sort of around 1,500 tonnes. So we're, we're really looking forward to getting access to these new sites and, and then using the uh, that processing base as well in Darwin and you know, getting our fish to market in as fresh a condition as possible. Right, so in an operational sense, the fish that is harvested off Cone Bay and from these new leases will be processed in Darwin and then exported internationally. Is that the plan? A bit too early to say. It may be one uh, aspect of what we could do because at the moment we are processing in, in WA and we just we might continue doing that. It's just it gives us capacity as we as our volumes increase. We've got another uh, area to focus on whether the logistics work well for that or not it's hard to say it's a big country that's the challenge with australia and you know it's not that easy to move fresh product around but it just it does open up that potential it's not something that we're uh, we've definitely got very little uh, plans in place yet because we're still as I say we're working through the, the whole process and we've still got due diligence to do and shareholders approval so so that special general meeting is being held in january and this will go to a vote yeah. is that right that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and you're and we, confident. Yeah, yeah, we're confident. We're confident that you know that's going to be well received because I think it's a good fit and it's a bit of a win-win for everybody. And this one, I guess, uh, sort of getting a majority Australia ownership, and that's really nice to see because while it's uh, great to see aquaculture growing in Australia, we see a lot of people overseas having more interest in our uh, beautiful clean waters than sometimes what we can get our locals uh, involved in. So it's, I'm, I'm very personally very excited to be involved in it because I've been involved in aquaculture a lot overseas where it's a much larger industry generally, and it's nice to see us uh, make some headway in our own country um, where we're, obviously we've talked about this in the past, we import sort of uh, 75% or more of our of seafood from overseas, mainly from developing nations. So it's good to have our own industry. And especially we see that when we have these pandemics and other uh, restrictions on moving product around, we've got to have some local capacity. Alistair Smart runs Barramundi Group's Australian business. He was speaking with Steph Sinclair about the company's new partnership with Wild Ocean Australia. An extraordinary general meeting on that sale will take place on the 10th of January. It's one o'clock. Yeah, I'm Dave Shepherd. I'm at West Elsie. Um, I've been up here for 28 years now and I'll be here for a lot longer. You're listening to the country air. Hello. Good to have you along this Monday, the 2nd of January. Michelle Stanley with you until half past one. And in this next half hour, I wonder whether you've started considering making the switch to electric vehicles, maybe for your, you know, your day car, your runaround car. What about on the farm? One producer has taken a look at the pros and cons of electric quads. Another thing I like about these vehicles is you can actually have a conversation as you drive. So often, uh, particularly the, the petrol versions, um, they're quite loud and, and trying to to speak while um, they're driving. You, you basically seem to be yelling at each other. So Sometimes it's just the little things. We will have a conversation about that before half past one. If you've done the numbers yourself uh, on electric vehicles, I wonder what you've found. 0487 991057. Is it worth it for you to make the switch? Let me know. 0487 991057. Let's head to the Bureau of Meteorology first, though. Rebecca Patrick is with you today. Rebecca, how much rain? have we had in the last 24 hours? Yeah, good afternoon, Michelle. Um, 
So although we have been kind of getting lashed by showers and storms across the top end, we haven't seen huge totals. They've been reasonable, um, but but not huge. Uh, Warrawee is the highest with 88 millimetres there on the north coast. Um, and there are a couple of other um, north coast locations also seeing that sort of 50 to 80 millimetre range as well as um, parts of the, the daily district have seen similar kind of rainfall um, even in, in Darwin, Nightcliff Pool picked up 81 millimetres, um, Daly River 81 millimetres as well. So some reasonable rainfall around, um, but not quite, you know, warning territory or anything. No, not like bad. we've seen the, la- the last couple of weeks really. How much longer are these monsoonal conditions likely to be around for? Yeah, um, pretty much all week actually, uh, expecting the monsoon to continue. We might see it easing off just a fraction, so um, it has been really quite vigorous um, and we do have warnings out for for um, those damaging wind gusts with those showers and storms coming through. Um, uh, so it may just ease below warning threshold um during the week but it will be still a little bit windy um, with showers and storms that monsoonal showers and storms continuing through much of the week. So the severe weather warning that's out at the moment is there any kind of highlights from that that we really need to be aware of? Yeah so it is for those damaging winds um, and I think the the interesting thing is that it's not just the thunderstorms it's with showers as well that we're seeing those really strong gusts um, so we've mainly been seeing them in the coastal areas but that uh, warning is out for um, the northwest Gregory district um, most of the daily district apart from the, the southeastern parts and the northern parts of the Arnhem district and TV islands as well so um, yeah those areas could see some damaging wind gusts up to about 100 kilometres per hour um, uh, although we should be starting to see a little bit of easing over the eastern um, northeastern Arnhem district later today. Ex-tropical cyclone Ellie uh, has been dropping an awful lot of rain over WA now as well in the Kimberley in particular but I hear it's heading back towards the NT what's going on there? Yes, yeah, she is much a mischief maker, this um, <laughs> this Ellie. Uh, yeah, uh, at this stage she's over in the Kimberley and is expected to move westwards over the next couple of days. Um, but from midweek um, or later in the week, we are expecting it to turn around and head back towards central Australia. Uh, we're not sure exactly the, you know, exactly the path that... Um, the, the low is going to take and where which areas will be impacted um, directly but um, yeah people in the southern parts of the territory probably should just be keep an ear out for for forecasts um, as we head later in the week and across the weekend um, there could be some some reasonable rainfall coming through with that system potentially is it likely to head offshore in WA before it turns around or is it going to stay inland uh, it it's looking like it might get fairly close to the coast, so it is something that our cyclone forecasters are keeping a very close eye on. Um, but at this stage, it's looking like it may turn before it reaches the coast. Um, but yeah, certainly a watch point at this stage. Yeah, and so if it if it you know does turn around before it gets off the coast, is there the t- I mean, you said there's going to be rain to southern parts of the territory. Do you, do you know how much? 
Uh, it's a little bit hard to tell at this stage, but um, yeah, it could be significant um, amounts of rain through through southern parts. Um, and yeah, we'll keep you updated through the week. Um, yeah, we'll keep we an eye have, on it. Yeah, should have a better idea in the next couple of days. What are conditions in the Barclay and the, the centre like today? Yeah, so the monsoon trough is actually extending from Ellie eastwards, so across the Gregory District and northern parts of the Barclay. Um, so we are getting that tropical moisture pushing down through the, the central parts of the Territory. Uh, and as we have been seeing the last couple of days, expecting um, more thunderstorms to develop through those central districts today um, and continuing for the next few days as well. Um, and just to be aware that any of those storms through that area could um, produce some reasonably heavy rainfall. So, um, yeah, there is a chance of severe thunderstorm warnings um, being issued over the next few days as well for that. So another thing to, to keep an eye on, obviously, there has been a lot of rainfall through those areas, so ground is, is pretty wet already. And then on the other hand, or the other side of things, is a fire weather warning for the Lassiter region. What are conditions <laughs> like there? Yeah, it's a bit of uh, a contrast to the rain in the north. Um, there is a few showers and storms around getting down towards the southern parts of the Territory. Um, but yeah, just those far southern areas where we're not seeing as much rainfall activity, we are getting quite hot temperatures. Uh, so Yulara, for example, is forecast to get up to about 40 degrees today. And um, we're also seeing some... Um, stronger winds developing through those southern areas as well um, due to again due to cyclone Ellie um, and the the squeeze between that low pressure system and a ridge to the south Um, so some windier conditions developing with combined with those hot temperatures that has elevated that fire danger um, across the Lassiter district today. An awful lot going on for you Rebecca thank you for that very comprehensive wrap. No worries. Thanks, Michelle. Rebecca Patrick from the Bureau of Meteorology. It is 13 past one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. The price of diesel has seriously pinched the budget in the last year. So have you found yourself contemplating the alternatives? Electric side-by-sides are now available and they're being trialled at Agriculture Victoria's Ellenbank Smart Farm in West Gippsland. The vehicles significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, particularly when they're charged by solar. And as Peter Somerville found out when he went for a drive with Greg Morris the numbers might just stack up. Ready to go? Ready to go. We'll get it going. It's on. That's it. It's Ready on. Ready to go. Let's go. We're going for a spin in an electric side-by-side. This You're is the first one. Yeah. I'm going to put my seatbelt on. Seat belt on, please. So basically, yeah, the, the, instead of a, a gearbox, we have um, basically just a switch that has neutral, forward and reverse. Uh, these vehicles have got their four-wheel drive. I can't see a speedo. Is that part of? Does it so, tell you how fast we No, going? these these models we haven't seen a, a speedo included um, on the dash. It really just has our um, what gear or, or what mode we're in, being forward or reverse, but then a, a battery consumption level. Let's go for a spin. Well done. Let's go. We'll never know how fast we're going. No, we won't. <laughs> 
I think the other, another thing I like about these vehicles is you can actually have a conversation as you drive. So often, uh, particularly the, the petrol versions, um, they're quite loud and, and trying to to speak while um, they're driving. You, you basically seem to be yelling at each other. So just come up a fairly steep hill beside uh, behind the dairy, and it's it's handled that with no problems. Yeah, correct. It um, it does seem to to, to handle well. Um, again, it's. I, in, in respect to a farm, I think the speed of the vehicle is, is very good. Um, you know, we have a large uh, group of, of different people using these vehicles and, um, yeah, being able to, I suppose, tame the speed at what people travel in these vehicles is, um, is, quite, is quite helpful from my behalf. How long do they take to charge? That's something that a lot of people will be asking. So it's about... Um, from from empty, um, it's, it's it's around eight hours um, to sort of um, get that full three hours of use. Um, uh, at, but that is at constant driving at, at full load or capacity. There's a lot of pros. Is there any cons? I, th- I think the vehicles um, do need to be put through their their paces uh, a little bit more. Um, I think trying the, the weight of the vehicle is probably uh, I wouldn't say an issue, but um, you'd think not having all the other componentry that it'd be a lighter. But the the vehicle has um, eight lead acid batteries uh, that that store and drive the the motor, so it is a significant uh, weight comparison between the vehicles. I think the other thing that we haven't found, but will become uh, potentially a I wouldn't say an issue, but a cost will be the replacement of those batteries. Greg, we've uh, we've been out for a drive. We've just come back in to sit down at the computer and look at the numbers. What does it cost to own one of these electric side-by-sides? Does it add up? Is it worth getting one? Yeah, well, I think um, when you take in the, into account the, the overall cost of purchasing the vehicle, which is very similar, whether you were to, to purchase an electric or a diesel or a petrol, there is some difference there. But um, yeah, we've just found that the the main the main savings has been the the servicing costs. So the vehicles um, have got a lot less uh, running or, or operating components. So yeah, when you take all those into account, the maintenance costs themselves are are a lot less. And what about the initial cost? What does it cost to buy one of these? The the vehicles that that we're buying are. are kitted up to some degree so we look at adding uh the windscreens a roof uh, a tow bar pack and so forth so very similar so probably close uh to about twenty five thousand dollars um with all those extras but again purchasing um the petrol version or the diesel um they they're quite uh cost comparable and um where the diesel itself you're probably looking at about five thousand dollars more overall so as you mentioned the servicing cost is one big benefit but um, i imagine the operating cost as well it would be significantly cheaper to fill it up yeah definitely the um so i suppose the operating costs or or the fuel costs for example we've done some preliminary stuff on that and and and, you know we have the the options here of of being able to charge these vehicles with with solar and, and and solar systems which which we try and do during the day it doesn't quite work with the operation of, of these machines. So um, the vehicles take about, 
Uh, from empty, I would say about eight hours to charge. And we've basically worked out, you know, there'd be a cost over annually, would be about $150 uh, to maintain that vehicle, where we'd head up doing the same kilometres in, in the others to um, up towards $500 um, for, the, for the petrol version. That was Agriculture Victoria's Senior Technical Officer at the Ellen Bank Smart Farm, Greg Morris, who was taking Peter Somerville for a ride in an electric side-by-side. I wonder whether that has you interested in investing. Now, on the topic, I mean, you keep hearing about Australia having all the ingredients to become a renewable manufacturing superpower, but it sounds like some startups still see their future overseas. Christian Jordan is the CEO of an emerging company called Sycona Battery Technologies, and it's hoping to capitalise on the lithium and electric vehicles trend. The company evolved from the University of Wollongong's innovation campus in New South Wales, and Christian Jordan says he'd like to see the government offer more support to encourage companies like his to set up here in Australia. Yeah, so Australia has no commercial battery manufacturing and just sort of uh, in, in summary, um, but there is the opportunity for Australia to capture more value and actually firmly believe that Australia should be manufacturing its own uh, lithium-ion batteries. You know, Australia uh, this year will supply 60% of the world's lithium. We, as a country, control the lithium market, which you cannot make a lithium battery without lithium, so uh, that, that really goes a long way, and we have uh, vast deposits of nickel, cobalt, manganese, everything that goes into a battery. We have in abundance in Australia, including the material that we use. Silicon is, is the, the raw material that we use, uh, we have in Australia. The carbon materials we use is domestic as well, and um, so to graphite that, that goes into the final batteries. So Australia is so blessed in all the, re- the raw materials and the resources has uh, everything else in terms of the skill sets to manufacture batteries and battery materials domestically. We just need to capture more of that value and and the government, I guess, uh, just needs to incentivize local manufacturing as other governments like the US are now pushing and there's a lot of sort of uh, protectionist trade policy being implemented and uh, governments like the US and Europe uh, are are looking at incentivizing companies like Sakona to come set up manufacturing there as opposed to doing it here in Australia. So it's it's quite an interesting dynamic at the moment, but Australia can and should be manufacturing batteries domestically because we control so much of the critical materials and minerals that go into, into batteries. You're, you're focused on the Illawarra for your operations. You've got this facility in North Wollongong. Can you tell me a bit about your plans for set, establishing yourself in the region? Yeah, so we um, just signed the lease on a, on a new facility in Berkeley, uh, also here in, in the Wollongong area, to, um, to expand. We ran, ran out of space in our existing facility here, um, so we, we're looking at building a, a large lab and basically our global innovation centre, uh, where we will be further innovating and, and developing other battery materials that we have in our portfolio, not just the silicon composite battery materials that we're currently commercialising, but we have some other tricks up our sleeve, if I can put it that way. So we'll be constantly innovating those and, and testing that and sort of building larger test batteries and you know growing. That's sort of an 800 square metre facility in Berkeley. We have some plans to look at a cell pilot scale manufacturing to demonstrate really as a, as a place to, for us to demonstrate our next generation battery materials. Um, so that's another plan we have uh, we in, in discussions with the New South Wales government around that for the uh, Shell Harbour LGA uh, is the plan there. But then the real big opportunity, unfortunately and unfortunately for, for Sakona is at the moment is, is in the US market. So in the new year for commercial scale manufacturing, 
will be pushing into the US market in a big way and, and setting up over there. Christian Jordan, he's the CEO of Cyclona Battery Technologies and we're speaking with Tim Fernandez about how his company is looking to make the most of what Australia has to offer. It's 23 past one on the country hour. I'm going to take a camp drafting next to meet a somewhat unexpected competitor. First though, this is Lady A. It's called Freestyle. Lady A, it's called Freestyle, 26 past one. G'day, my name is Rex Collins. I work at Sturt Plain. You know, I like the store stations, I like work around here. I love it. Good work, everything. You're listening to Country Owl. Now, Victoria's biggest camp draft was held in the last few days of 2022. You might remember on Friday I brought you the story of Rick Ford, who had travelled a fair old way to get to the Dumbolt Camp Draft. Four and a half thousand kilometres, in fact. We brought him down the horse float behind the car and uh, three horses, and I s- took seven days. We, we had to rest him up. It's a long journey over that distance, particularly coming from the heat up there and the build-up, the wet season in the Kimberley at the moment, and um, coming down to this cooler climate. So we've given a slow, steady trip down, but they all travelled well, and, yeah, they've, they've had a couple of good runs so far on the weekend. It wasn't just your usual pastoral types showing their faces and making a run. Would you believe that there was a three-time AFL Premiership player in the mix? Post-footy, former Hawthorne player Josh Gibson has given camp drafting a crack. I think just post-footy, wanted to get into riding and um, after buying a horse and then, you know, was doing some trail rides and, and went down to uh, visit a guy who's into, who's into um, training he said, have you ever seen camp drafting? And I said, no, no idea what that is. And he took me along to one. And, and to be honest, I thought, this is pretty cool. You all sit around, you have a beer, and you ride some horses. So I felt it was a good way to keep the competitive juices flowing now that footy was all over. And is that working for you? Uh, yeah, look, it's, it's frustrating because, you know, obviously I'm a very competitive person. And so you're starting at, at ground zero. Uh, so you've got a lot of catching up to do. But uh I love it. It's good fun. Um, It's a great community sport. Um, You know, it it really involves the whole family, and and I think that's probably, you know, some of the really great aspects of the the sport. So did you come to this from, uh, I guess, a a rural background? Had you been around horses uh, before you decided that you wanted to buy one one day? Uh, Look, I I rode a little bit as a kid, pony club. Uh, I just lived in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, so I was out towards Yarra Valley Way where I was riding, but... Uh, there was no horses during the footy career, so, you know, really from once footy took off from about 14 to to 30, uh, there were no horses. So, yeah, it's something that I've tried to adopt late in my life uh, as a new hobby. Are you trying to recruit other former <laughs> AFL players? Do you think we'll see more of them in the arena? No, look, they, uh, they're all used to sleeping under in five-star hotels, not under five stars at night, mate. So I think trying to get them to... Line a swag or, or sleep in the back of a horse float, um, you got no hope. Don't like your chances there. Don't like, don't like my chances at all. Where has it taken you? Where have you competed? No, look, it's, uh, it's been good fun. Um, you know, going to places like Wollinga Park, um, the property from Terry Snow, and, and, you know, really seeing a facility that's been built there, um, going up to Warwick and, you know, getting to see the history behind the, the, uh, the sport. And, and, you know, even down here in Gippsland, um, where you've got, you know, it really is a, a small league and, and the talent pool here is amazing. So, you know, you get to explore some good places around the country and, and meet some fantastic people. 
Now, what are you competing in here? How are you going at this particular camp uh, drive? Yeah, look, I've had a few runs. Um, I got one through to the second round today of the uh, Open, which was good. I just got off one then. I'm glad you guys didn't have a camera because that one didn't go uh, as planned. But I've got one through and got one to go in the maiden, so... It only takes one, doesn't it? It only takes one. That is former Hawthorne player Josh Gibson. He was speaking there with Peter Somerville at the Dumbolt Camp Draft in Victoria. He's given up the AFL and he's now giving camp drafting a crack. It really is a very mixed crowd sometimes, isn't it? That is it from me for the Country Hour today. I'll catch you again tomorrow from half past 12. Enjoy the rest of your Newsday holiday. It's 1.30.